Hey, everybody, it's Carrie Champion, and this is The Brown Print, a podcast that offers solutions and guidance for the marginalized and those who feel left out. These discussions will act as a guide to mentor those in need of direction and also to inspire those who feel hopeless. We will move the needle forward and speak out on the issues by way of dialogue and telling stories of those who need to be heard. I began building the kind of life a woman is supposed to build. I became a good wife, mother, daughter, Christian, citizen, writer, woman. But while I made school lunches, wrote memoirs, rushed through airports, made small talk with neighbors, carried on with my outer life, I felt an electric restlessness buzzing inside me. It was like constant thunder rolling right there beneath my skin. A thunder made of joy and pain and rage and longing and love too deep, scalding and tender for this world. I felt like hot water simmering, always threatening to boil. I was afraid of what was inside me. It felt powerful enough to destroy every bit of the lovely life I'd built. So my guest today on The Brown Print is Glennon Doyle. Uh, many of you know her as New York Times best-selling author. Uh, I most recently read Untamed and Love Warrior. I don't know if you have, but you should. Uh, but the reason why I wanted Glennon on Brown Print was because to me, and I try to explain this all the time when I'm talking to people about this podcast, The Brown Print is about those who do it differently. The Brown Print is about someone who chooses to say no to expectations and walk their own path, whatever that may be. The first time that I came across Glennon, her book was taken off. This was last summer. And I remember thinking, what a powerful woman. Although she speaks softly, it's powerful. So... I know I'm rambling on, but I need you guys to really sit back and relax because this is an education. This was therapy for me because she was amazing. Um, she talks about her childhood, um, her life, and the constant journey to really, really, truly connect with who she was before the world put all these expectations on her. Everyone, welcome Glennon Doyle to The Brown Print. Tell me about your childhood, how you grew up. So I grew up in a loving uh, little family, mom and dad, little sister. My dad was a football coach at the local high school and a principal. My mom was a Spanish teacher and then a guidance counselor. My little sister, Amanda, um, I, I don't know. She's three years younger than I am. And I always, I, I get scared when I think about those three years that I was on the earth, that she was not on the earth. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrifying to me. She has been, you know, walking me through life since the moment she was born. Mm -hmm. um, and we've been inseparable since then. Although we did have some years where we were not able to be in contact because of my addiction got so bad that she had to distance herself for a while. Um, so, you know, I, I was raised in a loving family with all kinds of people are always amazed that I became bulimic so early um, and that I got sick so early because, you know, I had parents who had resources to, to help in terms of they were guidance counselors and educators and they worked with children. Um, and yet we know that we can't 
save people. There's no, there's no amount of love that fixes mental illness, right? We don't like beat it with love. Um, and so I still did fall into bulimia very early. Um, and, you know, my parents, because they were educators, they just taught me a lot about how we show up for the world. You know, we just always kind of had this understanding in my family that, um, I mean, you talk about this kind of stuff so much on the brown print, but that, you know, we're kind of born into this world that, that where there's so much inequality and injustice and, you know, whatever you do have and whatever you are given based on privilege, which by the way, I never would have had that word before. My parents didn't know that word. I didn't know that word. Now I do. Um, you just use where you have, my parents used it inside of education. Um, and then I did that. I was actually a third grade teacher for a long time. So I went into education right away. Um, and then when I got sober, I started going to recovery meetings and then I figured out that you could tell the truth there hmm. about who you were. That was a big freaking relief. And then I started having babies and was just dripping with children. And I couldn't get to meetings anymore. And that's when I started writing because hmm. I figured I could use my, my honest voice in my writing, just like I could in an AA meeting. You said something that really is powerful to me. You can't beat mental illness with love. You talk about mental illness and 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 taking care of yourself mentally. And I, you know, my base is sports, and we talk about it a lot. Athletes are being more um, open about, you know, struggling with mental illness and not having resources. Based on the research and what you've what you've learned, where did mental illness originate for you? What mm. were what were the triggers? Well, I love that word. I think that um, it's so complicated. It's so complicated. And it's it's um, interesting because for me, when we talk about mental illness, it's super important to almost have a respect for the people who do suffer from mental illness. Because I will tell you that I am a writer and an activist. And so all of my friends basically are a little mentally ill. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even like, like I don't even really like people who aren't a little bit mentally yeah. ill. Like I'm right. I don't wish them any ill will, but I'm not like curious about that. Right? I think yeah. all the best You're people like... are people who struggle with this um this thing that is is scientific and is is biological, but it also has the spiritual side that, you know, is like is it, it comes along with this deep sensitivity. Um, that allows these sort of people to be artists and um, activists and world changers in ways that are outside of the proportion of what they should be for the, right? Like the, 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 the percentages of people who are inside of world changing work who also deal with mental illness is so high. And I think it's because, you know, I know that this, the sensitivity, the high sensitivity that led me into depression and still sometimes does is the exact same sensitivity that makes me a good artist. Mm. Right. And the fire that I, well, I call it my fire, Carrie, my therapist calls it anxiety, but <laughs> it's whatever, <laughs> whatever it is, you know, that makes me kind of fearful sometimes and very sweaty all the time is also uh -huh. the, the fire that makes me a good activist. Right. So yeah. it's these things that, you know, there are in most cultures throughout time. And even right now, the people who 
are highly sensitive in the culture, these people are pointed out and sort of revered. These are the, mm -hmm. the shaman and women and the medicine men and women and the poets and the clergy and the, you know, the people who are um, known to be a bit eccentric and different, but also known to be crucial to the survival of the, of the group because mm -hmm. they can see things that other people can't see and hear things that other people can't hear um, and, and notice things that other people can't know. You, like you, all the stuff you talk about, mm -hmm. like these are like prophetic types of people that in mm -hmm. most cultures are understood to bring gifts and mm -hmm. to be necessary for the survival of the culture. But I think our culture is just so, so hell bent on efficiency and faster and faster. Yes. Right. That people like me or some other highly sensitive people who deal with mental illness, it's just easier to kind of call us broken than to consider that we might be responding appropriately to a broken world. Oh, right. Wow. That we might be people who are standing on the deck of the Titanic going, iceberg, iceberg, yes. right? And everyone else is like, we just want to keep dancing, right? So um, I don't know. I, I I wouldn't, mental illness has has marked my life. You know, I mean, it's it's the biggest struggle of my life. But if someone came to me and said, I would take it from you, I would never let them. Mm. That's powerful. Wow. I think looking at you, you take what the world sees as broken and you use it as your superpower. Like it's, it's highlighted in the way you write. It's it's, you make it cool and acceptable and even in a, in a way envious to, to have your struggles. You say, so this is what I'm dealing with. And the way in which you have been ordained to speak in this way to those who understand you, um, not only makes it acceptable, it makes it, I, I love that about her. I love mm -hmm. that what the world may see as broken. Do you ever realize, and I'm sure you do, but for, for our listeners, why you have been chosen? Um, you know, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I do know that I found some kind of peace and freedom for the first time inside of recovery. So I became bulimic when I was 10. And then, you know, when addiction doesn't get worked out, it just morphs into other things. So food addiction became alcohol addiction and that became everything. And by the time I was 26, I was just really, really um, sick and lost. And I went to my first recovery meeting and I told you I met the first honest people I'd ever met in my life. <laughs> you know, I remember going to that meeting and being like, oh my God, these people are so jacked up. I do not belong here. <laughs> like, I straighten my hair, okay? I got ready. Right. <laughs> and they started talking and I was like, these are my people. I see. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so at my fifth or sixth recovery meeting, sobriety, early sobriety is so terrifying because um, when you're an addict for a long time, everyone in your life is trying to tell you to get sober because you're ruining everyone's lives. <laughs> okay. So they're begging you to get sober and they accidentally promise you that sobriety is going to be just nirvana. Like it's just going to be heaven. It's going to be awesome. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you, you trick yourself into thinking, oh, drinking is my problem. I'll just, once I quit drinking, life will be awesome. And 
then you quit drinking and life is a slice of fresh hell. Okay. Mm. It's just awful because, well, because that's why you started drinking in the first place, right? Because I didn't want to do a life. Right. <laughs> because you've been numbing for so long, right? Yeah, it's like yeah. frostbite. And then you start to get all your tingly back and everything hurts again because you've yeah. been numbing it out for so long. And that's terrifying because you figure out, oh, it wasn't the booze that was the problem. It's me. And now what do I do with that? Because I'm stuck with me for the rest of my life. So it's terrifying. So I um, stood up at my fifth recovery meeting and I said all that. I said all that and I said, I am afraid that everyone else in the world has some secret to life that I don't have because it feels like it looks like it's so easy for everyone else. And it's just, that's not my experience. <laughs> and this woman came up to me at the end of the meeting, Carrie, and she put her hand on my knee and she said, I'm going to tell you something about early recovery that someone told me early on. And she said, the secret to life is this. It's not hard right now because you're doing it wrong. It's hard right now because you're finally doing it right. Mm -hmm. Because showing up for life mm. without any numbing on life's own ridiculous terms is hard as hell. That's why so few people do it. Right? But all feelings, even the, fe the all the feelings that you're finally letting yourself have now, even the uncomfortable ones, all feelings are for feeling. Right? And she said, the secret is that life is not about feeling happy. Life is about feeling everything. And I was like, oh, I can do that. <laughs> like, I thought I was supposed to be freaking happy all you the time. You feel everything. <laughs> I can do that because I just feel like we are raised in this culture and many families and many religions and many in our culture that just worships happiness. Like you're supposed to be happy all the time. And yeah. if you're not happy, you're failing. Right? Like all happiness and gratitude and joy and success are for feeling and fear and anger and shame and, and heartbreak and all of those feelings are for hiding or numbing or mm. pretending you don't have. Right? But Carrie, that is bullshit. Like yeah. what I have found in my life since I've decided, okay, I'm going to feel it all. I'm going to allow myself because by the way, that's why I became an addict because I didn't think I was allowed to feel it all. Right? If somebody had told me when I was 10, Oh, all these big feelings you're having. Awesome. You're going to use them all. Yeah. Maybe and you I thought you couldn't them. have you. You thought you couldn't have those feelings. So you began to numb them away. But the feelings that you have have made you who you are in such a beautiful way. And don't I don't know if you see it that way, but it is true. Oh, that's so beautiful. And thank you. I'm very grateful for that because I have no other choice. <laughs> <laughs> This is my only choice is this way of life. But I have, I swear to you, Carrie, I, now I think of the comfortable feelings as recess and all of the uncomfortable feelings as the real classes. Amen. Right? Uncomfortable feelings. That yeah. People numb have taught me so much more about who I am and what my purpose is down here than any of the easy stuff. You know, what pisses me off makes me know what I'm, what I'm here to change. Right. Okay. So I, I have to ask you this because for those who know you as the mother, the wife, the writer, the activist, I think you show us all of that. 
you show the world all of that. When Glennon the writer is crafting something as beautiful as Untamed, walk me through that writing process. Mm. Okay. Well, first of all, I think the writing of Untamed started when I was 10. I think I've been just suspecting that something was jacked up down here since I was little. <laughs> like thinking I was living in the matrix the whole time and nobody was telling me, <laughs> you know, just like, oh, something's wow. not right down here. Um, and and I think it's just all, all the stuff about being a woman and living in this particular culture we're in um, has been on the tip of my tongue since I was little. And, and so I just, even with the first two books I wrote, I knew they weren't getting to the marrow of things the way that I needed to get to the marrow of things. And um, I knew that Untamed needed to be that. And so the way writing a book is for me is it's just the worst. I hate every minute of it. It's not enjoyable. It's not like it looks on the movies, like a writer and her cup of tea and her <laughs> flow or whatever. It's, I just complain a lot and I feel, um, it feels heavy. I get up at, when I'm writing a book, I get up usually at five in the morning and I, I can only write the deep, raw, creative stuff that a book takes first thing in the morning. I can write magazine art. I can do anything else for the rest of the day. But book writing has to be first thing in the morning before anyone wakes up. Because when anyone in my life wakes up, I forget Glenn in the soul. And I'm just like <laughs> getting people shit. I'm just like making snacks and serving, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> just, I just turn into like a Aaron doing robot. Uh -huh. So, so, you know, those times when you're like out of your roles and in your soul, that's my morning time. I write in a closet, in a small closet. That's how I started writing. Um, 12 years ago, when I decided I wanted to start writing, I had this very tiny, tiny house. My third child used to sleep in the bathroom. So I literally had no rooms to go to. So I started in this little closet. And it was so wonderful because it was like kind of dark and small. And I just remember being surrounded by like jeans and piles of underwear and t-shirts. And I just felt like it was secret. Like I was writing on a blog to like millions of people, but it felt private because I don't know, it felt a little bit like being in a meeting. Like it was just me in the dark using that inside voice that we're not allowed to, that voice inside that we're never allowed to use. You know, because we have mm -hmm. to send out our representative self that's mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. so damn happy with everything. So um, so when Abby and I moved into our new house, we got a big office. I got an office, Gary, with a desk <laughs> and like chairs. And I was like, oh, my God. He's I'm like crushing. the Jeffersons. You were moving on up. You're yes, like, whoa, I made it. <laughs> and then I started writing Untamed and I couldn't do it. So now I, I have this big, beautiful office and I still write in the closet every morning that's where my my real voice comes out why um, I don't know it just feels safe um you know what my office feels like a grown-up like like a, a grown-up should should there's fancy things and like pictures and trophies of, that I didn't win obviously yeah I've <laughs> never won a trophy in my life <laughs> but I don't know. I feel like I'm in a role here. Yeah. Uh -huh. I feel like I'm back in a role. I'm like Glenn in the grown up. 
And in the closet, I just feel like any voice that comes up can come up. And the amazing thing is, Carrie, that sometimes I write things. I'm like, this is too weird. Like, no one's going to get this. This is just, I'm going to be like hospitalized again. after this one. Mm. And I send it out to someone and it, it's the deeper and weirder and truer I get, the more people connect because we're all the same. We're all but you're same. brave enough to talk okay. about it. And, and make it okay. Before we started working on this project, I don't want to digress too much, but when we started working on that project last summer, I think it was, or like April, May, right? When was April, May? Share the mic. Was it maybe mm-hmm. April, I think May? So. Of, uh, was it that early on? Yeah, I think it was. Uh, yeah, it was It was right around when everything just went to hell in a handbasket. But it was, I mean, things had already been awful. But when you and all these other amazing, incredible women, by way of background, if you're listening, uh, Share the Mic was a was this project where women who had smaller platforms, perhaps considered marginalized, um, took over platforms for women who had huge audiences to talk about social justice, to talk about the uncomfortable shit, their relationships with white women if they were black, uh, the the world that we were living in and how unfair it was. And and it was created by you and Lovey and Bozema and um, the president, I believe, of, or what's, I forget her name, of Alice and Olivia. Mm-hmm. Stacy Bendit. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, Stacy. And the project was so powerful um, very much changed my life because as you do, you encourage this atmosphere where we talk about the uncomfortable things because we're more alike than different. Busy, who is my my platform p- partner, is still my friend to this day. She's been on this podcast. I think that you have been able to put together such an incredible following. And, and, and a lot of the people who I know who, who love you, love you for your honestness as a mother and a wife before you were married to Abby. How, how does someone who battle, who battles with mental illness, who may have felt a certain way, who writes in a closet, talk about being maybe not the mother you didn't want to be, being married to someone who you didn't think you needed to be. And then on top of that, being like, I found love again, but not traditionally as what my Christian fellowship would try to tell me, I fell in love with a woman mm-hmm. that I love, but I fell in love with her heart. Mm-hmm. Like all of that blows my mind. You've lived a thousand lives. <laughs> I know. How do you do but it? You know what? I don't know if it's, I okay. So in recovery, they talk about, um, you know, just peeling back the onion. It's like, it, it, it could be a thousand lives or it could be that I've just been trying to undo since I got sober. I've just been trying to get back to that being I was before the world told me who to be. Right. That's how I feel that like, I'm just trying to get closer and closer to who I really am, not who people expected me to be or who my parents thought I should be or my religion thought I should be or my culture thought I should be or my, what my political party thought like, it's really just trying to get back to who I was meant to be before all that crap, right? Like when I got sober, I became a mom. I mean, I got sober because I was pregnant. That was the catalyst. Um, 
And so I had just been such a mess for so long and I had hurt so many people. I'd been like a bad girl. That was my, you know, that's what I did. And I just thought, okay, now's my chance to be perfect. Now I'll be perfect. I've been bad for too long. Now I'll be good. Mm -hmm. Right. So I just freaking did all the things. I went back to church. I was a Sunday school teacher. I was an elementary school teacher. I was like trying to learn how to cook. All the things I didn't know. I just try to be a perfect wife, perfect mom, perfect teacher, perfect everything. Then 10 years into my perfect marriage, my husband told me he'd been unfaithful to me since the day we got married. So it was like this moment of like, oh, I see. You can do everything right and still not end up with a true life. (laughs) Right? That is real. That is a word. (laughs) Like like being a bad girl didn't work. Being a good girl didn't work. So how do I be a free woman? Like, I remember talking to my friend Liz and saying, quoting to her this Steinbeck quote that said, you know, now that we can be, now that we're done being perfect, we can be good. And I remember her saying, you know what? I'm so effing tired of being good. I want to know now that we're done being good, how can we be free? Mm. And I think by that, I, she just meant bad, being bad, being a rebel is living in reaction to status quo, right? Being good, being perfect is living in um, obedience to status quo, but they're both living your life in reaction to somebody else's rule, right? So rebellion is just as much of a cage as obedience is. Because it's not creative. It's not creating your own life from yourself. It's living in reaction to somebody else's standards and expectations. So I think that this iteration of of different lives is me being like, just how do I get back? How do I know that I'm living from my own compass and not somebody else's map for me? How do I not get to the end of my life laying on my deathbed wondering if I ever lived a day that was true to me? Mm. Right? That's powerful. Like, how do you do that? <laughs> I'm asking. Question, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the answer. Because next cause, Tuesday, I think ne- you ha- thank you. Because I'm all like, wait a second. Who am I living for? And when did I ever just live for me? Just for me. I know. When when do we do that as humans? Well, as women, Jesus. I mean, okay. So at some point, I figured out I don't have any idea how how to do that. Like I have completely lost touch with the inner voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have have no idea. Like my friend recently who she's trying to figure out what job's next. And I was like, what do you want to do with your life? And she's like, Glennon, I don't even know what I want to do for dinner. (laughs) That's right. We don't know. We don't know what we want, right? So Carrie, I'm trying to figure out when has this line gotten cut from my brain to my heart or from my words to my intuition? Like when did this line get cut? And I walk into my living room and my little boy i have a boy and two girls until they tell me different and my boy is watching tv with all of his friends and i say is anybody hungry and all of the boys without taking their eyes off the tv they say yes so i'm like okay that's good right that's you've nailed this q a okay you figured (laughs) the girls do something completely different carrie which i bet you will recognize First of all, they're completely silent. Nobody says anything. Then every single girl takes her eyes off the television and starts looking at each other's faces. Carrie, 
at each other's faces to find out if they inside their own bodies are hungry. Okay. <laughs> and then, and then through some kind of wild mental telepathy, they assign a spokes girl. Okay. Yeah. Silently. And one of the girls looks over at me and says, no, thank you. We're fine. And I'm like, oh my God, that's how I forgot how to know. I forgot how to know when I learned how to please, right? Because boys, little boys are conditioned, are trained in every, in moments of uncertainty to look inside themselves, to find their desire and to speak it on the outside. And little girls are trained in every moment of uncertainty. Look outside yourself. For wow. For consensus, right? Wow. Wow. Just wow. And so that's why we, it's not our fault. We don't. The only way you're, what my best answer to your question is that the only way you ever know if you're living true to yourself is if you live from the voice inside instead of from the million voices outside. But, in, but for girls and women, we have to practice getting back to that because it's cut off from us so early. We are trained to look outside of ourselves. But if we can be conditioned to that, we can be deconditioned. Okay. So tell me, am I wrong? At every relationship I've been in, I'm like, he's just selfish. But he's just listening to that. And like, we all think men are selfish because they don't, they immediately speak from that inner voice. And we are like, oh, well, maybe kind mm -hmm. of, you know, taking care of everybody else but us. Mm -hmm. That is, Glennon, so true, right? crazy. And it's not called selfish. It's just them being, just going with what they know. This is mm -hmm. what they hear and they're speaking. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I also think that there is a root of that that is as um, caging for men as it is for women. Because when you look at that scenario really carefully, what you find is that little boys are trained that uncertainty is weakness. Okay? Bo men, you know, how many men have you ever been with who will like stop and ask for directions? No. Who will say, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. Never. I don't know how Never. I feel. I don't know what I want. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm just curious about what you think. Like, hey, what no. Okay. And, and it's possible that they're not all born selfish dickheads, right? It's possible that they've been conditioned to, to, to see uncertainty or any kind of wavering as weakness, right? As unmasculine, as whatever. So they err on the side of certainty constantly, which I think really, I mean, I was a third grade teacher, Carrie. I just have seen up close the conditioning of little boys and little girls. And it is real. I mean, the shaming that comes at them early and often, these little guys. I mean, I would be on the, the on the playground watching my kids play dodgeball and little girls would miss or something, cry. Everybody would come help them, you know. Oh, God bless a little boy who missed and cried. I mean, the shaming that would come at that little boy, right? So they learn early, no mercy, no compassion, no vulnerability, no uncertainty. Um, and that has consequences later in relationships, I think. With them, with men and with women, the conditioning. That's we we spend our adulthood trying to forget our childhood. I right. Okay, so <laughs> I just, right. I have to say, so you told the story and you've 
shared it a million times, but can you share it here on the podcast? As you're talking about the conditioning and the and 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 being as you have, the more I believe, the more successful you have become is because you live your truth and you're so honest with yourself. When and with the world, like you share it all. I envy that. I mean, that's a that's a characteristic that is built. It's a muscle. Like I think it's a skill that is that you flex so well. It's a muscle that you flex so well. So you you get a divorce you, mm-hmm. or you fall in love with Abby. Do you get a divorce after that? And Mm-mm. then okay, and that would have t- been much more convenient. <laughs> I want to know the process of how you go to your family and your friends and tell them, your children specifically, and then you tell the world. Oh, gosh. Okay. So I um, was at a, at a launch event for Love Warrior, mm-hmm. which Carrie was being touted as this epic marriage redemption story. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. You're like, hey, guys, you can keep your marriage alive if there's been adultery, if there's right. been addiction. Fine. And by the way, I was not yeah. saying any of that shit. I would never say that stuff. I've never, ever been like, this is self-help. I'm like, this is my life, whatever. But that's how th- that was the tagline. Oprah had picked it as her book club. So this yep. is what we were going with. Epic marriage redemption story. Okay. <laughs> so at the first and and I was, you know, we Craig and I worked so hard to try to make our marriage work after infidelity. Like we did all the things you're supposed to do. We waited around for forgiveness to fall from the sky, you know, as a reward for all of our long suffering. And sometimes I did feel, sometimes I felt a little bit forgiving and we had our moments where we were like a little cream cheese postcard family, you know? And then, and then I just felt most of the time, just full of rage honestly I really did I felt like a dormant volcano with lipstick on just like always threatening to explode and at this event I met Abby I just saw her in a doorway and my entire being was just like there she is Mm -hmm. there she is okay I wasn't like I didn't see her and think I am gay (laughs) just I just saw her and thought like that's my person okay so it's not okay so that's this whole separate thing but um you know really over time the decision abby and i just we we were together that evening with those other writers um in a room with those other writers for maybe a half hour and then we never saw each other again until we had both dismantled our entire lives to be together Okay, so we were never, never alone in a room, never touched each other. It was just so wild. But what became clear over time was that this was not just about love. Like, do I love Craig or do I love Abby? That's not what it was about. It was a self, myself had risen up, a self that I had buried a long time ago. And it really became a question of, am I going to abandon that self and go back to my broken marriage? Or am I going to abandon everyone else's expectations of me? Rock the hell out of this boat risk my entire career, my family, hurt my children so that I don't abandon myself, right? So um, I will tell you the moment, I almost just decided to just bury myself again and just go back to my marriage. That is truly the decision that I was prepared to make because I thought, Carrie, that a good mother does not hurt her children. That is what, at the end of the day, it was about, my kids and I was taught that a good parent doesn't hurt their children. And then one day I was watching my daughter Tish get ready. She was braiding her hair 
And I looked at her and I thought, oh my God, I am staying in this marriage for her. But would I want this marriage for her? And if I would not want this marriage for her, then why am I modeling bad love and calling that good mothering? Right? And the answer is because I was taught, I was conditioned, as all women are in every scenario, to believe that a good mother is a martyr, that a mother just slowly dies, just buries herself, buries her dreams, buries her ambition, buries her feelings, buries her desire, buries all of it, and calls that love, which of course is the biggest burden to pass to a child. You know, Carl Jung said that um, there's no greater burden on a child than the unlived life of a parent. And I realized what a good mother, we have to be intentional about what we decide is good, right? No, no, no. A good mother, no matter what my culture says to me, is not a martyr. A good mother, mother, uh, mother is a model, right? I mean, our children will, will only live as freely and truly as we give ourselves permission to live. They will do what we do, right? And so actually as a mother, it's my job to not settle for any relationship or career or world or community or nation that is less beautiful than the one I would want for her, right? So I just thought, oh, I don't need to live, I don't need to, to leave this marriage even though I'm a mother. I need to leave this marriage because I'm a mother, right? So after that, Carrie, after deciding to break my children's hearts on purpose, the rest didn't freaking matter. The rest didn't matter. I mean, are you kidding? I'm mad at some, I'm scared of some internet trolls now after that. Like, no, I was a little bit scared of the Christians. I'll tell you the truth about that. I was going to say they're, they're a tough crowd. No, <laughs> ain't nobody mean like people being mean for Jesus. Carrie. Yeah. Oh, they, that's a special brand of meanness. And you ain't lying about that. No, um, but listen, but yeah. listen, here's what I learned. When you said it's a muscle that you flex, what I learned is that I can survive that. Yeah. If I can survive the public crucifixion of Christians to me, I mean, because Christians are always crucifying people and not even noticing the irony at all, <laughs> at all. You're like, didn't Jesus die on the cross so that we could do what we want to do? You're oh, okay. My bad. Go ahead. Finish in the name of Jesus. Okay. I don't know if you heard what you said. And of course you did. You've, once you decided to break your children's hearts on purpose so that they could see a better life and you model a better life, everything after that was easy. Easy. Are you the happiest yeah. you've ever been? Yes, 100%. But I will tell you, Carrie, that happy, I just don't, I am a clinically depressed motivational speaker. Like happy is not ever going to be my jam. I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> what I, what I, I'm happy several times a day, at least I can tell you that, but what I am is alive. Okay. I'm fully alive. I feel everything. I feel my heartbreak. I'm not ashamed of it. I feel my anger. I'm, I use it. I feel my envy. I, I, I channel it as a signal to what I'm meant to do next. I don't numb. I do deal with life on its own ridiculous terms and I deal with myself and all of my ridiculous quirks and faults and all of it. So, so no, I'm not happy all the time, but I can tell you that I don't have any shame 
and I don't have any regret and I don't have any, um, I'm at a place in my life where I don't want different at all. I just want more of the same. And that to me is happiness. Hmm. It may not be defined how you think it should be defined, but that is living a life where you don't allow people to live in your head or their thoughts to live in your head rent free. Like mm-hmm. that's right. Powerful. Like powerful. When do you do the seminars every day? How much do I pay you? Cause that was therapy. <laughs> like, do listen, I need I to, should I, be- and I was like, do I do seminars? <laughs> yes, you don't. Do I give you Venmo? Because I can Venmo you right now for this, this, this therapy slash sermon you just gave me, Glennon. Oh, well, I'm, I'm gonna so give, glad I, that my decades of therapy are paying <laughs> off for someone. Glennon. I got $2 and 50 cents to send to you. I'll take my little coins and go ahead and do the work. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Glennon Doyle. Nothing but just pure joy and light when I talk to you. Um, mm-hmm. And that is what you give. I really, truly believe that is... Why God put you here to share your truth so that we can be more bold as we try to share our truth and live from that inner voice. Like, okay, literally. well, I think you could say the exact same thing about that is what I would say about you. Yeah, yeah. but 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 That's you're reminding exactly. me, you're reminding me of so many things. And I think mine has been more directed towards career and being a brown woman, but like personally, in my in my personal relationships, like I want to just speak from that place and just be so true and honest and and not, I'm doing good. Life's great. I'm amazing. Yeah, I'm amazing. You know, no, today's shitty, but hey, I'm pushing through. You know what I'm saying? Love, life, healing, wonderfulness. I'm sending that to you, okay? Same right back at you. Glennon Doyle, ladies and gentlemen. Hi. Again, I'm so honored to have her here on The Brown Print, but but I want to recap because this is something that I think we don't discuss a lot. Just in normal conversations with friends, family, you know, in life. She said, you can't beat mental illness with love. She grew up in a perfect family, and that's in air quotes. She did all the things that she was supposed to do, but she was trying to numb her feelings because she felt everything. And as a result, different addictions popped up. And she thought that she was wrong for feeling every single thing she was feeling. And no matter how much love she got, it didn't matter. So she thought, back then, I have to numb these feelings. She didn't realize that broken people may be responding to a broken world. And that is something that you should be proud of. She makes us feel like it's okay to feel everything and be different. She also said, and like, whoa, this is powerful. I said to her, are you happy? And she paused. Life isn't about being happy. It's about feeling everything. Happiness is recess. You know, like when you're in elementary school and you guys get to go out and play, that's a good time. Life is really a hard class, which is why so few of us do it sober which is why so few of us experience life without trying to numb the pain, which is why so few of us are unhappy because we're chasing this ideal of happiness. And that's just recess. Feel it all. Now that is powerful. I asked Glennon, and I think we'll still be thinking about this for the rest of our lives. How do I connect 
with the person that I truly am before expectations were involved. And for her, quite simply, it's a muscle that she has to flex every single day. You have to remind yourself what your truth is. You have to speak in truth. You have to feel the truth. You have to understand the truth. That sounds like a lot of work to me, but it is truly something we should try to work towards. I am so grateful that we had Glennon Doyle on the brown print today. I need you guys to go out and check out Untamed. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo. Something special. And do some research. Check out Share the Mic. That was one of my favorites. Glennon Doyle, thank you. And thank you for the folks who are listening right now. We'll have another edition of Brown Print next week. That's it for this week's episode of The Brown Print. Let's keep the conversation going online. You know I love to go online. Follow us on Instagram at The Brown Print Podcast and on Twitter at Brown Print Pod. Follow me, Carrie Champion, on IG and Twitter. You can find me at Carrie Champion. Don't at me if you got attitude. Well, okay. We'd love to hear your feedback. Or if there's a specific topic you want us to tackle or guests that you want us to have on, please reach out to the brownprintpod at gmail.com. Again, at brownprintpod at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. It helps spread the word. It is so important that we stay active and vocal. We'd greatly appreciate it if you showed us some love by leaving a five-star rating and a positive review. If you do not, I know you are a hater. Ha <laughs> ha. Kidding. Kind of. Not really. Meanwhile, uh, again, five-star rating and positive review. We need it. It really helps the podcast grow. The Brown Print is a Gallery Media Group original production.